Today's scripture reading will be taken from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Uh, This is a very familiar scene to all of us. Uh, We know it as the time when Jesus went in and cleansed the temple. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he raised the dead, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Well, good morning, church. How is everybody this morning? It's good to see all of you. Good to be here. Bring your greetings from the Waterloo Congregation and from Great Lakes Bible College. It feels like old home week. It's great to be in a church that uh, knows how to say Knudsen. You know, it occurs to me that uh, if the Lord comes back while we're worshiping together, it's the one thing that he's not going to interrupt. We can just keep on doing what we're doing. Although I suspect that somebody else may be leading singing, Tim, and uh, I I don't think I'll be preaching. In fact, I don't think there are any sermons in heaven, are there? Amen to that. Lord, come quickly. But the day will come when we will live by sight and not by faith as we do right now. But for this morning, we're still walking by faith. We're gathered in his name. We're doing what we should be doing on a Sunday morning. And uh, it's our great privilege to to take some instruction from God's word. So let me invite you to open your Bibles to the passage that was just read or keep them open if you still have them there. We're really just going to park here and talk about this one passage, what happened here, uh, how that you know, what, what the message is, what that says to us today, because we think of that as happening a very long time ago and very far away. And, of course, we want to ask the question, so what? I mean, what does that mean for us today? Now, let me say, first of all, that the story that unfolds here in John chapter 2 belongs exactly where John put it. Jesus actually started his ministry by cleansing the temple, and he ended it that way as well. These two events are not just symbolic bookends. They say to us that Jesus was deadly serious about holiness, about being 
pure and dedicated to God as we come into the presence of a holy God. Well, on both occasions, here in John 2 and Matthew 21, the event was the Passover. And you could say the temple was all geared up, but not in a good way. It was kind of like a shopping mall getting ready for Black Friday. And so there was a lot of things going on. Before we go there and talk about that, let's think about the Passover for just a minute. One of the big three annual feasts that all Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem for, and really it was a high time of thanks and celebration to the Lord, it was commanded in Scripture. It really took, it transported those who participated in it all the way back to the founding of their nation. Back to the, you remember the ten plagues, the, the death angel, the salvation of the firstborn. It was the great escape in broad daylight, slow motion. As Pharaoh and his armies looked on helplessly, they couldn't stop it. And the world was amazed at what was happening and as they watched the power of God unfolding. So the Passover was important for a number of reasons. But the one that stands out is that the Jewish religion was a religion grounded in history, in the things that God actually did. See, faith in God wasn't natural, didn't come naturally to anybody, and certainly didn't come naturally to the Jews. God spent a few weeks getting them out of Egypt, but took 40 years to try to get Egypt out of Israel. They'd gone native. It was hard to do. The point of the Passover was that the God in whom they came to believe was real. Remember the question Moses asked God? You know, God said, I want you to go down to Egypt and deliver my people, bring them out. And, and Moses says, well, when I get down there, who am I going to say sent me? And God basically said, well, tell them that the God who exists sent you, in distinction from all of those who did not. So the Passover, the Passover called all of Israel to remember their roots and to remember God who is known first for his deeds, uh, and then for his words. Now, a lot had changed in the intervening years. By the time you come to the first century, the practices had evolved, and there were things that were part of the Passover meal that you won't read about in Exodus chapter 12. But without going into all those changes, this is why Jesus was in Jerusalem. It's why thousands of other people were in Jerusalem, and they had come from all over the Mediterranean world. Now, I understand that at that time, the temple courtyard proper was about 35 acres in size. It was quite large. And outside of the inner courts that were for the Jews only, there was a large court of the Gentiles. And so as Jesus came and began to look around, it was filled with livestock. There were sheep and oxen. There were birds. I imagine it kind of smelled like a barnyard. It was noisy like it. What had happened was that the high priest, through the priest, had rented it out to vendors. The priest got a cut of the revenue. In theory, you could bring your own sacrifice, but good luck trying to get that past the examiners who actually wanted to sell you their product instead of having you offer your own. And then you had all the people that came from too far away to bring animals anyway. So they came and they bought from the temple monopoly. Well, the prices were outrageous. I mean, when you're the only show in town, you can charge whatever you want, right? And so, and before you could buy the sacrifices, you had to change your money. Kind of like going to the States. This was temple coin. And the prices were outrageous. So they got you at the money changers table, and then they got you again when you had to buy the sacrifices. You know, 
And so Jesus saw what was happening. It was exploitation in the name of religion. And he was outraged. He was angry at what he saw. Not only that they, had, that they were doing this business in, in the Lord's courts, but that the people of God were being cheated in the name of religion. It's kind of like saying grace and forgiveness is for sale. Or we just jacked up the price. And, of course, to, do, to, to line the pockets of the men who were making money at it. So he took action. You know, he, he fashioned a whip out of bits and pieces of cord and rope, and he drove, John says, he drove all out of the temple. Well, what does all mean? All the animals, all the people. It's interesting in Matthew 21, <clears throat> he drove out the buyers and sellers, and odds are probably that he did that here as well. Well, you can imagine the chaos. <clears throat> animals running everywhere. Uh, the, the money changers all on their hands and knees trying to pick up the coins. I'm not sure if the animals got out of the courtyard and were running through the streets of Jerusalem, but it was mayhem. Well, Jesus said to the money changers, he got right up in their face and confronted them. He said, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, they were even selling doves. The only people who sacrificed doves were the poorest of the poor. Nobody was too poor to get ripped off. Now, here's the most amazing thing. Nobody stopped Jesus. They didn't even try. Not the priests, not the temple guard, not the, not, not the guys who paid good money for the concession stands. Not even the money changers who I think were too busy trying to pick up the coins before they got away. See, the fact is nobody dared. <clears throat> nobody dared. And, and that itself was a sign. They knew that they shouldn't be doing it. They didn't want a public debate about something that was transparently wrong. And so they waited to come to Jesus and to confront him and to ask him some questions about it. But that was a sign. And seeing this, John says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Taken from Psalm 69 and verse 9. Of course, this goes back to David, who was fervent for God, fervent for the house of the Lord, and he endured a lot of abuse because of it. There were people in his day that talked down, looked down, despised him because he was zealous for the Lord. Maybe the disciples were a little bit afraid the same thing would happen to Jesus. You see, David had said, and if you go back to Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. He's looking back at the effect that it had had. But when Jesus cited it, and when John has it here in the gospel, he says, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is looking ahead and predicting that certain things would happen, and that's what he talks about when confronted by the leaders. Now, only after the fact did the leaders confront Jesus, and they did. They said, we want proof that you have authority. Well, maybe a sign from God. Well, kind of a stupid thing to ask for. I mean, first of all, the sign was that he had just done it. <clears throat> this is what Malachi said would happen. If you go to Malachi, keep your place in John, but Malachi 3, 1 to 3. Malachi writes, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He'll clear the way before me, speaking of John, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? 
he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. He's the priest. He will purify them. He will refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. But you know, the guys who demanded the sign, they weren't looking at Jesus through Scripture. They knew all about money. They didn't know much about the Word of God. And more to the point, they weren't ashamed. You know, Jesus was bad for business. Unless he stopped doing what he was doing, unless he stopped interfering, they were going to lose a bundle. So they demanded a sign. To which Jesus said, okay, destroy this temple. Destroy the temple, this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, it was a bit of a riddle of a shawl. He used three words that had a double meaning, so they could take it one way or they could take it another. Destroy could mean tear down, like you tear down a building. could mean destroy a human body. The sanctuary or temple, that could be the literal building, or it could mean the human body, where your spirit resides, or as Christians, where the spirit of God resides. And raise up, that could be reconstruct, or it could mean resuscitate, bring back to life. So what did he mean? Well, we know what Jesus meant. How did they understand what he said? You know, at his trial in Matthew 26, 61, they hired false witnesses who claimed that Jesus had said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God, that building, you know, and rebuild it in three days. Years later, at the trial of Stephen, they kind of recycled the charge, and they put the words into Stephen's mouth. They said, this man incessantly speaks against the temple, that temple in Jerusalem, against the holy place and the law. We've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs whom Moses handed down to us. On both of these occasions, they tried to make it seem that Jesus was talking about the physical temple. But John says he was talking about his own body. He was talking about the resurrection from the dead. Now, both temples were connected, right? They were both connected. God had caused his name to dwell in his presence to abide in the temple at Jerusalem. But Jesus was also the dwelling place of God's spirit, as well as God in the flesh. Now, Jesus didn't command them to tear down either temple, to kill him or to tear down the temple. But it was true that the destruction of his body would lead to the destruction of the temple. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to all sacrifice. When Jesus died, God moved out of the old temple in Jerusalem. He even tore the veil on the way out, leaving the Holy of Holies empty. And from that day until now, God's been pleased to live in a new place within his people. You know, he's taken up residence in those for whom Christ died and those who Christ has redeemed. So that one by one, or all of us together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. You see, the, the, the new Israel has been perfected by the blood of Jesus. There's a union between our spirit and his. God, who is spirit, never had very much in common with bricks and mortar. But he does with you and me, made in his image. You know, the great irony was that from about AD 30 to 70, when it was destroyed, the old Holy of Holies was empty. God wasn't there. An animal sacrifice was just a waste of time. The old temple, even when Jesus was there, was on life support. But even then, 
Even in his final days, God cared for what happened there. In the words of Jesus, it was still my father's house. And it was still a house of prayer. And not just for the Jews. Still they demanded a sign. And Jesus basically said, when I come out of the grave, that's your sign. When you destroy the temple of my body, of course your own temple is obsolete. But when you destroy one, you destroy the other and only one of them's coming back. Well, you know, it's no surprise he made enemies that day. They don't talk like that without putting people on edge. But were they upset because they understood what he was saying? Uh, Were they just kind of playing dumb? Saying, you know, it it, it took 46 years to build the temple and you're going to raise it up in three three days? You know, kind of like, get serious. Who would believe that? When Jesus hung on the cross, though, they taunted him. They said... You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. But then, you know what they said after he died? The next day, by the way, this comes from Matthew 27. The next day, they spoke to Pilate. The day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. They said, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, this deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. Ah, They did get it. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure till the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal the body away, and say to the people, He's risen. He's risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. So on the one hand, it was convenient to perpetuate the lie, you know, to say Jesus is a temple basher. But when the time came from the real showdown, they knew what he said. They got serious. They posted the guards. They put the seal on the tomb. They put everybody on notice what they were doing. They knew exactly what Jesus had said. And they knew that once they had torn down his body, they had killed him. And he had said, I'll be back on the third day. They did everything they could to keep it from happening. And you know what, when when the the guards that they posted came back and reported what happened to them, they knew that what he had said was true. Well, the sign was not primarily for the benefit of those who didn't believe. It was for the benefit of Jesus' own disciples. And his disciples did believe in him. In fact, John tells us they believed the scriptures that said that he would rise. Now, they believed the scriptures alongside of the things that Jesus said. They attached the same authority to the words of Jesus as they did to scripture. Once in place, both simply had to be fulfilled. A couple of examples of that. You know, when when Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, he said, While I was with them, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them that not one of them who that not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So Jesus was doing what needed to be done to fulfill scripture. When he was arrested in John 18, verse 9, he asked that his disciples be allowed to go free. John says he did that, that the words which he had spoken would be fulfilled. And in John 12, 32 to 33, he predicted his own death by crucifixion. John pointed out that Jesus' words were fulfilled, John 18, 32, when the method of execution was known. The words of Jesus had to be fulfilled. Scripture had to be fulfilled. Both were equally authoritative. 
All right, so what's the so what of this passage? What, what do we learn from this? What, what do we take away? Are there any abiding principles, and how would we apply them? Let me just suggest a couple. First of all, I think we got to look at what bad leadership looks like. I mean, the temple leaders were carnal, they were greedy, they were in it for themselves. They weren't spiritual, and they really were not qualified to lead. If and when God's people are led by carnal men, those who follow are in danger. You know, that's still true. The church is not about money and power. It's not a tax shelter. It's not somebody's cash cow. It doesn't exist to serve human motives. God's people exist to glorify him, to worship him, and to serve him. A second principle is bound up in God's purpose for the temple in Jerusalem. You know, God had it built so all people would come and worship him at that place. You could say he had an open-door policy, but the leaders were closing the door. You know, they closed the door, they jacked up the price, they were keeping people from having access to God. You know, each of us needs to be absolutely certain and decide here and now that we'll never close doors that God has opened, that we'll never restrict access to God or discourage those who seek Him, and that we never, in some way, maybe unintended, make salvation harder than it already is. That's not our place, and we should never do that. This passage also says something important to us about interpretation. You know, sometimes... There are scriptures like this riddle that are not easy to understand, so we have to work at them. More often than not, God just comes out and explains what those are about anyway, so listen to his explanation. But God wants us to apply ourselves to what's said, to allow one scripture to explain another. You see, that way God gets to explain himself, which is the right way to approach scripture. Most of God's word is not hard to understand. God actually intended for everybody to, to get it, to know it. It's not written in code. And there's really no excuse not to do the things that we know that we should do. And finally, we should know that Jesus has not stopped cleansing the temple. He didn't just do it once or twice. He's doing it today. You see, the, the sign of the resurrection that Jesus chose was not arbitrary. The authority that Jesus has to prepare a holy place for God to dwell on earth was acquired by him on the cross and at the resurrection. He's cleansed his people, you and me, and he's created a new place on earth which is fit for the presence of God. And he is zealous to keep it that way, that we remain clean and pure and holy. You know, he wants us to join him in that, to, to resist temptation, to come to him over and over for cleansing, the cleansing that only he can give, and to live united with him, indwelt by his spirit, so that one day we can join him in eternity. May God never stop cleansing his temple. Amen? Amen. So that his Holy Spirit can remain and be at work in us, claiming us for himself until God comes one day in Christ to take us home with him. Which raises the question for each one of us, where are we? If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Are you cooperating with him 
Are you grieving him? Are you quenching him? Are you allowing yourself to be led by him through his word? Or maybe you've never made that decision. You've never decided that you want to turn away from a life of sin. There's no better time than now. In fact, there may be no other time than now to do that. To confess faith that you have come to in Jesus as a son of God. To be baptized into his name by his authority for the cleansing of your sins. To take up a new life. When you do that, or if you are now already a Christian, the passage we've been looking at is fulfilled already in you. And may it continue to be fulfilled to the honor and glory of God from this day forward. Let's stand and sing our final hymn.